All right, we will have the split sermon brought to us today by Mr. Curtis Whiteley, entitled, The Sword of the Spirit. Good afternoon. It's wonderful to be here once again, just like it always is. And uh, I hope by the end of today that these two Bibles are, uh, are taken by somebody, uh, because... At the end of this message, I am going to challenge all of us uh, to do something that's relative to what Ron has just uh, provided for you. In America, especially somewhere like Oklahoma, it's interesting how we can drive down the street and mile by mile, and and you know as we go through the different towns here in Oklahoma. Uh, once, one thing is pretty much a consistent standard, and that is the number of churches that we see. I mean, you've probably heard that word used, you know, Oklahoma, in the middle of the Bible Belt, right? Because we have so many churches. You know, you know pretty much it's, it's considered a conservative state, uh, and a lot of times that is uh, obviously has to do with, I guess you would say, the Christian values that... It's placed upon uh, the people that live here. But it's interesting at the same time, I mean, you can kind of take that out and look at America. And obviously America being a, you know, still, even though it, it seems like it is in great decline, still a, a nation with uh, quite a bit of Christians, comparable to other nations of the world. But at the same time, there is a... And I don't have any facts, I don't have any figures per se, any percentages there does seem to be kind of a disconnect. Because although we do have these high numbers of churches, of congregations, who all at least claim to be preaching the Bible or teaching the Bible, there seems to be kind of a decline in biblical literacy. I mean, you can just kind of take, you know, young kids for an example. And I teach a class at the high school secular level. And... Uh, I've never done such a thing in such a setting, but I am kind of at least a little surprised at some of the, the stories of the Bible that I consider to be really basic are not always known to individuals of the ages of 16 to 18. And I don't think it's limited to that. I don't think it's just limited to that age range. I mean, to an extent, maybe. But I think it's very interesting that we have a nation, like I mentioned, that has so many churches and is still supposed to be predominantly Christian, but there seems to be kind of a lack of understanding of what the, the, the narrative of the Bible actually has to say. And so today in this message, obviously it's titled, The Sword of the Spirit, and I think most of you know where I'm going with this, we're going to look at something that we've looked at many times before. We're going to look at a string of passages, one of the most, I guess you would say, image-filled passage or string of passages that is kind of gives us a little insight into what we know as the armor of God. Okay, we've heard that terminology before there in Ephesians, the sixth chapter, and that's where we're going to turn here in a minute. And we're going to look at that armor of God. But at the end of this message, I'm, I'm going to really try to become very practical. 
And what I mean by practical, I really want to present us, and not just you, but myself, and challenge us to do something that we can actually measure if we've succeeded or not. In other words, give us some application that we know that we're either succeeding at or failing at. So let's go to Ephesians, the sixth chapter, and let's just take a quick look at this string of passages that we've read so many times before. Ephesians, the sixth chapter. We're going to pick it up in verse 10. Paul is concluding this letter to the Ephesian church, to, to, the, to the people there at Ephesus. And he starts out by saying here in the very last, you know, almost, almost at the ending of the epistle, and he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to, able to stand the, against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, and against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And above all, taking the shield of faith which, with which you will be able to quench all of the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And so right here we see, there's, you know, Paul gives us, kind of a little insight of the, the nature of the battle and the nature of the enemy that we're dealing with. Paul mentions the wiles of the devil. And I think that it's interesting because this Greek word here is in the plural form, not just the English word. You know, the, the devil's crafty schemes. And we can see so many examples of Satan the devil's tactics that he uses on us and on God's church and on God's people. These schemes here in the Greek indicates a, a cleverness, a, a crafty method or crafty methods, cunningness and deception. And we can see this in so many different areas of our society and, and, and life. Number one, we can see it in false religion. I mean, false religion is one of the obvious areas where Satan has a great foothold in. And you know, it's interesting, it's a false religion, but no one signs up and says, hey, I am going to go into this false religion. They all are convinced that they are the truth. No one thinks they're false. People aren't saying, yeah, I don't want to be in the truth, I want to be in the false. That's not how things go. It's, it's a deception. People are deceived. How about in disunity or factions? A great tool of Satan the devil is bringing about disunity, especially in the crucial parts, the crucial institutions of God. Marriage, family, and church. How about our weaknesses? It's an easy one for him. Fleshy carnal desires or weaknesses, things that 
it's obvious that the devil's always looking for, always looking to get a, a foothold. And another way, a surprising way, that he actually uses deception to try to deceive us is the actual word of God. And if we can just think of Genesis, the third chapter, and the temptation of Adam and Eve, looking at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said to you, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees. We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And we can just kind of see something really interesting about Satan's tactics working here. Number one is that he's, he's a liar. He blatantly lied. He contradicted what God told Adam and Eve, that they would not die. And not only this, his lie is packaged in this really desirable and seemingly pleasant wrapping. You know, it looked good. It looked pleasant. It looked like it was, you know, fulfilling and satisfying. You know, Satan, he's not going to tempt you to do something that's, you know, not pleasant. He's not going to say, hey, come over here and, you know, do something that you don't want to do. He's going to try to entice you to do something that seems to have immediate gratification. That, that, that seems, on the outside, in this package, seems to have some sort of worth to it or some value to it. Something satisfying, something desirable. How about Jesus' temptation in Matthew, the fourth chapter, verses 1 through 11? We all remember this. Jesus, immediately after his baptism, he goes into the wilderness. And he's tempted of the devil 40 days and 40 nights. And he's fasting. And it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. This is in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Led up by the Spirit to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God... Command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him in, up into the holy city and set, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Verse 7 says, Then Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up to an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship 
the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. So we see, once again, Satan's up to his same old tactics. Taking a situation, the obvious weakness, or the obvious or seemingly weakness, and we know Christ was perfect, but we know he was also human. And after fasting for that long period of time, we know that bread, according to the flesh, probably did seem pleasant, did seem desirable. We see that Jesus was also tempted with jumping off a cliff because as God's son, he would be protected, that God would charge his angels and not let him dash his feet on the stones below. But we also know that Jesus quoted scripture back. Not just about, no, this goes against God's word. I know God's word, but he actually applied God's word here about not tempting God. And Satan, right here, although he failed, it's very interesting, although he failed, he didn't give up as the same account in Luke. In Luke chapter 4, if you look at verse 13 of the same account, the same story that happens. It said that Satan did not give up, but left him until an opportune time, basically. It indicates that he, and we know this from later passages, that Satan didn't give up right there on Jesus. That he came back to him. He came back continually, probably, every single day of his life, and tried to make an attempt to get Jesus to stumble. And this is Satan's wild, wiles. Trying to present... Evil in the form of good. Trying to present people with something that seems like there's value to it. There's some sort of gratification. There's some satisfaction that comes with this. Let's go back to Ephesians, the sixth chapter, and we're going to look at verse 12 again. That nature of that battle that's going on in Ephesians, the sixth chapter, verse 12. And it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers against the rulers of the darkness of this age and against a spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. And we know that our battle is a spiritual one. We have to battle spiritual forces constantly. And we see examples of this in Scripture. We know that when we think physically of battle, we think of war, we think of struggle, we think of, you know, soldiers, we think of, you know, in our 21st century setting, we think of, you know, military tanks, we think of, uh, military guns, we think of mach- uh, nuclear weapons, fighter jets, things of that nature. And we know that the enemy that we are dealing with in this Christian battle, they're not physical. They're spiritual. And sometimes God, or not God rather, but Satan, will use human, humans as his agents to try to entice us, to try to get us to fall. But we know behind the scenes it is nothing but a while of the devil, a scheme of the devil. I was initially going to go to Daniel the 10th chapter. I'm going to let you just kind of read that on your own. But Daniel the 10th chapter, just kind of going over it quickly. There is a great foresight, or even though if we, we can't understand it fully, there is a great story in there about Daniel and his experience with the spiritual side. And, and, and there's a great uh, I guess you'd say imagery that's kind of showing the principalities on the other side. That there are angelic beings that actually have to wrestle or have to deal with 
demonic beings. Now, do we understand that fully? Of course not. And that's something for the future we will understand at a later time. But what it does is it demonstrates that there is a great battle going on. There is a constant struggle for our minds. A constant struggle to get us off track. And sometimes there's even a struggle for the angels of God. Well, let's go back to Ephesians, the sixth chapter. And let's just kind of start looking at these principles, these, these things that Paul presents us with. We're going to kind of quickly go through the keys to success, the keys to protecting ourselves that's laid out. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this because I really want to get at the, the meat of this message, which is at the very end, which has to do with our offensive weapon. But we're just going to kind of look, and let's just kind of read that, read right over that once again starting in verse 14 in, in Ephesians chapter 6, and just kind of go over all these different elements is what is known as the armor of God. Verse 14 says, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, there are several elements that we're going to look at real quick. You know, obviously, Paul's giving us a physical analogy. You know, he's wanting us to be able to say, you know, here's something that's really obvious to you. You, you understand how battles work. You understand, you know, how, what soldiers have to do. Maybe you've seen it. You've seen maybe Romans and Romans in battle, and you've heard from, you know, just the time period that you live in, you know, in general, the different things that a soldier has to be equipped with when going into battle. But the first thing that Paul mentions is girding our waist with truth. Now, we've heard that before, right? You know, we, we've heard that, you know, gird up your loins. And in ancient times, soldiers, a lot of times, the types of clothing that they wore back in, in, in these settings, in these times, a lot of times were loose. You know, they weren't close-fitting like the clothes that we wear today. And so a soldier fighting hand-to-hand -hand combat a lot of times, I mean, obviously they used weapons such as swords, as we're going to look at, but they also sometimes had, obviously had to come really close in proximity to each other to, to do so, such a thing. You know, it's not like today's battles where we have, you know, machine guns and other weapons where we can be very far off from the enemy. But it says to gird up our waist with truth. First Peter, the first chapter, verse 13 to 16, mentions girding up the loins of our mind. And what that basically means for the soldier is, is you know, using that belt that they have and, and making sure that they're tying up any loose piece of clothing. You know, stuff that's loose that, that could trip us in the middle of battle. Stuff that could get in our way. Stuff that could hinder, hinder us from being effective in the battle. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying that we need to, to gird up anything that could you know, hinder us in this battle, anything that can kind of throw us off track, trip us up, and to use that with, with, with the belt that we have because that's how these soldiers would do it. They'd use the sash or some sort of belt to gird up their loins, gird up that loose piece of material that could potentially be hazardous to their mobility or things of that nature. And he's saying use that belt of truth with truth. And there are several biblical reasons why truth is so important. Through truth, we can understand accurately the things of God. 
I mean, it's through the truth, through the truth of the Word of God, that we understand the truth about God's salvation, the truth about Jesus Christ, the truth about how God's law is still in effect for us today and still applicable to the Christian. The truth about God's holy days and about how God's holy days pictures this plan that is leading into the you know, culmination of all things, bringing Christians to salvation. Truth is also something where we can be sanctified through. You know, sanctify them with your truth. You know, your word is truth. God's truths. Truth is required for true worship. You know, and truth and spirit is how we are supposed to worship God. And truth also gives us the ability to distinguish what is false and counterfeit. And I think I've mentioned this in a message before, many other people have, but some of you people that maybe have familiarity with working at banks and bank tellers and people who deal with money all the time, they constantly are dealing with the real thing. You know, it's, it's always been said that, you know, how do you want to be able to know, like, you know, if you're a bank teller, I have been told, it could be different today, but I've been told, one of the things they do is, is they don't study counterfeit money, but they study the real thing. And so they get so, they, they understand and they learn the real thing so much that when something false creeps in, a counterfeit, they know immediately. But see, without the understanding of the truth, we don't have any pinpoint to say something else is not true. So girding up our waist with truth is the first thing. The second thing is the breastplate of righteousness. Obviously the breastplate, something that would go over the torso of the body here and protecting vital organs, the heart, the lungs, the abdomen. This is what a soldier would wear into battle. And that breastplate is mentioned as the breastplate of righteousness. And see, God's righteousness is what keeps us close to Him. God's righteousness is what keeps us sensitive to the Spirit. And we get away and we stop living you know, in a righteous way, in God's righteous past, we start to get desensitized to the things that are out there, things that are unrighteous. We start to kind of feel like, well, maybe this sin's not that bad. Maybe this won't hurt me that much. It's kind of a deception, another one of those things that we know that Satan the devil would love to try to get a foothold in our minds. He also mentions to shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And shod means to fix. Soldiers in these days would wear boots with nails in them. Some like, you know, obviously, today in modern sports, we know that athletes wear cleats. Spiked shoes on the bottom so they can have a good foundation when they plant their foot into the ground that they're in that, you know, it's nice and firm. And see, that is what the gospel does for us. The gospel is, is basically something that we have been commissioned to proclaim as Christians here today. You know, that's one of Jesus' commission to go into all the world to preach that gospel that he took, that gospel that, about that kingdom and teaching them to observe all the things that Jesus had taught them to observe. And it is through this gospel that we are grounded in the beliefs and understandings of God's plan. It is what keeps us focused on what God has in store for us, generally marching towards His kingdom. The next thing, the next element says the shield of faith. These shields, back in these days, and if you've ever done any studying on you know, the, the ancient Greeks, uh, a lot of times they would have these large shields, and these shields that they would use were large enough actually to protect the entire soldier. You know, a lot of times, you know, they talked about, you know, if you've ever studied any history of, uh, of, of different 
uh, ancient soldiers or, or battles, you know that you know a lot of the times these soldiers, such as the Spartans, if you ever heard of uh, the story of the Spartans, where there's you know there's we don't know if it's completely accurate uh, the the account that we have, but that battle that the Spartans had with the Persians, and they were greatly outnumbered, but they had these shields and they had these very disciplined techniques. One of the techniques called a phalanx. The phalanx was a formation that they would get in, where even though there was only about, you know, a hundred of them. They were almost immovable because of the formation they would get in and the way that they would hold their shields, which would completely protect the entire soldier. And oftentimes in these days also, other opposing soldiers or armies would have arrows that were on fire, you know, fiery arrows. And these shields they would actually uh, finish them with substances and different types of oils that would actually not just repel these fiery darts, but they would quench them. So when a fiery dart or a fire, you know, an arrow that was on fire would hit one of these shields, that stuff that had, you know, that, that substance that had been put on these shields would actually extinguish those, that, that uh, fire that the uh, arrows were on fire with. And the shield of faith that Paul is talking about is that faith that we have in God. You know, we have a lot of trials sometimes we all go through. You know, things that come upon us instantaneously sometimes. You know, sometimes it can just be, you know, trials, and those trials sometimes can lead to doubts. And see, that faith, that shield of faith, it's not just meant to repel those fiery darts, but to extinguish them. The last thing we're going to look at here is the helmet of salvation. It's the last element. The helmet of salvation, obviously after a soldier would get on all of his other armor and gear, he would put on his helmet. That helmet would be that last piece typically. And this helmet's very important because obviously if you are an opposing soldier, a headshot would probably be the most desirable because it would probably be the most likely to end the soldier's life or put them out of battle. And so... Protecting the head became a major target in fighting and in battle. And here Paul uses the phrase, helmet of salvation. And it seems like this could be taken in two ways. Essentially, salvation is something that is closely related to a helmet because deliverance does involve a mental decision. You know, we make a decision to put our faith in Jesus Christ for our salvation. We make a decision to put our faith in God as opposed to our faith in ourselves for present deliverance. And so we can look at this shield of faith as being both present deliverance as well as eternal deliverance. You know, we have been eternally delivered from the death penalty of sin. You know, as long as we carry on, we press on towards the end, but we also have God's promises that we have a present deliverance, that God would deliver us from certain situations, maybe they'll be physical, maybe they'll be mental or spiritual, so we have an eternal deliverance and a present deliverance, that helmet of that salvation, but the last thing, the last thing that's mentioned in verse 17 of chapter 6, it says, and take the helmet of salvation, 
and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And here the Greek word for the sword refers to a 6 to 18 inch long device. A sword that is double-edged and would be used uh, and could be used in different ways as a double-edged sword. But the Greek word for word is interesting because it's not the typical word we hear in the, the Greek New Testament, logos. It's, it's the term rhema. And this word typically is more indicative of referring to the utterance of God rather than just the written word. And it seems that Paul is trying to get across that it's not just the word of God that we need to put into action, but the actual, or it's not just the word of God that he's mentioning, but the actual word of God put into practice. Put into action. Applied. Jesus' only offensive weapon that he used against Satan was God's word. And if we remember, he didn't just quote scripture, he actually applied the scripture during that present temptation. Hebrews, the fourth chapter, verse 12 mentions, and if you want to just write this down, I'm just going to kind of read it real quick. It says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. We know that God's word is a living word. And it's a living word that is able to change us. It's able to, to transform our minds. We can just think of you know, all the great examples of the Bible. Remember Joshua, and this just kind of came to mind recently. Joshua, you know, Moses had just died. Now he's been commissioned to kind of take the torch, take the children of Israel into the promised land. And one of the last things that he was told by God was what? He was commissioned. Don't let my word go away from you, basically. Don't turn to the right or to the left. Heed the commands that I have given you for Israel and you. Also, James, the first chapter, verses 22 through 25, it talks about being a doer of the word, not just a hearer. It talks about, you know, being a doer of a word because a man that's just a hearer is a forgetful man. James, the first chapter, verse 22 through 25, talks about a person who just, you know, hears the word but doesn't put that word into action. And when a person does that, what happens? A person forgets. It's like a man looking in a mirror and then walks away and forgets what he looks like. When we don't apply the word of God, we forget the areas that we need to work on in our life. It becomes fuzzy to us. But when we're actually trying to apply the word of God, it helps us to see ourselves as we are. Because as we read the scriptures, as we read you know, the passages about Christ and about uh, the righteousness of God, it lets us know, you know what, I have to work on stuff. I have to continually press on. So, with this said, I have just a few challenges to all of us here today. In conclusion, I was thinking about how do we apply these things. Well, first of all, we have to have a firm grip on the sword. We have to have a firm grip on the sword. We must practice. And since Paul's giving us a physical analogy that has a spiritual reality... Let us examine how soldiers holds a sword in battle. 
You know, obviously, if you're a soldier in these days and you were fighting, you would hold a sword with your hand or hands. And this is something that probably would take practice. It was probably something you don't just do, go out and walk, and you try to, you know, use your sword, and you've never really done it before. It's probably something that takes, you know, years of practicing. You know, we can just imagine a soldier who has no experience, someone who just tries to go out and battle, hasn't practiced. You know, he or she might, you know, do several things. Might be, get fatigued easily. Might get tired. Might, you know, not have the strength. They haven't, you know, practiced on holding that heavy sword long enough. You might not use it properly. You might have bad technique. You might just give the enemy a weakness to try and exploit. So my challenge to all of us, myself, as well as you, is to sword practice daily. How do you do this? Well, for starters, what Ron talked about at the very beginning. I challenge all of us today to read the entire Bible in a year. This takes approximately 15 to 20 minutes a day. You can purchase a Bible. It's a daily Bible. You can go online uh, and, and print out you know, a sheet that will just tell you which scriptures to read every day that kind of helps you do this. It's all organized. I challenge us to read the entire Bible in a year. If we can't do that, then at least try to set aside a certain amount of time, 10, 15, 20 minutes a day, to read a portion of the Bible part of the Bible, so many minutes of the Bible. The goal, of course, is to be able to be in shape to handle the sword. The second thing, obviously, which is kind of getting at what Paul says and talking about the, the rhema of God, not just the logos of God, the applied word, apply the sword in our lives. Remember, Jesus did not just quote scripture, but he put it into practice. Make a mental list in prayer and meditation. You know, try to pray and think about things that maybe you know you need to work on. Remember, Satan loves the fact that that old man or old woman sometimes might just come out and play. I think we all know what we're talking about. Make a conscious effort to put the principle of the Bible into practice. Be specific in your mind. Be specific in prayer. Maybe it's in marriage. Maybe it's in parenthood. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's among friends. Maybe it's with some sort of spiritual issue that you have, have to deal with. Anger. Uh, uh, lust. Uh, you know, sexual immorality. Anything that you know and you can go before God and ask help for. Be specific. Try to be able to overcome something and, and, and do so by applying the Word. As you read that word on a daily basis, look for things that you can immediately go out and apply in your life. The last thing I want to leave us with is easy. We must prepare now because the battle is now.